This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case book Computer Aided Exercises in Civil Procedure by Roger C. Park and Douglas D. McFarland. The case book is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute the contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Civil Procedure Lectures. This is part four, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about joinder and supplemental jurisdiction. So moving to federal rules joinder. A variety of joinder devices are available under the federal rules. In fact, the number of devices and the similarity of some of the names of the devices can cause confusion. As a consequence, a person studying federal joinder must be sure to keep the various devices separate. The task may seem daunting at first, but understanding the purpose of each joinder device should greatly reduce the difficulty. First, I will provide the names and brief descriptions of all of the devices, and then I will discuss each device in more detail. The federal rules joinder devices are the following. Joinder of claims. That is, a party may join more than one claim against another party. Compulsory counterclaim. That is, a claim against an opposing party that arises out of the same transaction or occurrence as the claim of the opposing party. Permissive counterclaims. That is, a claim against an opposing party that does not arise out of the same transaction or occurrence. And a cross-claim, that is a claim against a co-party. And permissive joinder of parties, that is allowing joinder of multiple plaintiffs or multiple defendants. Compulsory joinder of parties, that is, requiring joinder of multiple plaintiffs or multiple defendants. Third-party practice or impleter. That is, a party defending a claim may bring into the action a third person who may be derivatively liable for all or part of the claim. Intervention of right. That is, a third person must be allowed to enter the action as a party. Permissive intervention. 
That is, a third person may be allowed to enter the action as a party. And finally, interpleader. That is, a person holding property potentially subject to multiple claimants may require claimants to assert their claims against the property in the same action. This can be statutory impleader or impleader under the rule. Now moving to the types of joinder devices in detail and joinder of claims. Joinder of claims under Federal Rule 18 is unrestricted. Quote, a party asserting a claim, counterclaim, cross-claim, or third-party claim may join as independent or alternate claims as many claims as it has against an opposing party, end quote. The overriding policy is efficiency, allowing both the court and the parties to resolve all disputes in a single lawsuit. That means a plaintiff who has a conglomeration of totally unrelated claims against a defendant may join them all in one action. Although Federal Rule 10 suggests strongly that unrelated claims be stated in separate counts. It means also that other parties who properly bring a transactionally related claim, such as a counterclaim or cross-claim, are able to add unrelated claims. Should a confusing situation result, the solution of the rules is to allow the court to use its discretion under Federal Rule 42B to order separate trials. Joinder of claims is not a pleading problem. It is a trial problem. The rule makes clear that claims may be joined. A party may choose either to add another claim or to save it for a later lawsuit. A party choosing the latter course must be wary of the preclusion doctrines. Should the unasserted matter actually be part of the same claim asserted in the first lawsuit, it would be lost under the doctrine of claim preclusion, or res judicata. Even should the unasserted matter truly be a separate claim, one or more common issues may be litigated and decided in the first lawsuit, raising the possibility of issue preclusion, or collateral estoppel. Now moving to counterclaims. A counterclaim is asserted against an opposing party. Essentially, that means a counterclaim crosses the V of the lawsuit. A defendant may assert a counterclaim against the plaintiff. A plaintiff may assert a counterclaim against a counterclaiming defendant. A third-party defendant may counterclaim against a third-party plaintiff. A claim that does not cross the V, as for example a defendant against another defendant, is not a counterclaim. And moving to compulsory counterclaims. A compulsory counterclaim is a counterclaim that arises out of the same transaction or occurrence as the claim. Other counterclaims are permissive counterclaims. Courts are therefore required to determine the scope of the transaction or occurrence. 
while that phrase cannot be precisely defined. In its essence, the transaction or occurrence is a single set of facts. It is not tied to legal theories or defenses. When cars driven by A and B collide, and then driver B gets out of his car and punches driver A, this presents one transaction or occurrence, only one event, not one for negligence and another for battery. Clearly, the transaction or occurrence is close to the claim for relief, to the common nucleus of operative facts of pendant jurisdiction, to the Article Three case or controversy of supplemental jurisdiction, and to the scope of a claim for purposes of res judicata. The party possessing a compulsory counterclaim must state it, even though a defending party is thus required to litigate its claim in a forum of the opposing party's choosing, the drafters decided that this inconvenience was justified by the efficiency of litigating all claims arising from the same transaction or occurrence in one proceeding. A compulsory counterclaim that is not stated is lost although courts vary on the theory of loss, some using preclusion, others using an estoppel, and others using a sanction for violation of the rules. Clearly, the safe course for an attorney in doubt as to whether a client's potential counterclaim is compulsory or permissive is to plead it. Now, moving to permissive counterclaims. The federal rules define a permissive counterclaim by exclusion. A permissive counterclaim is any counterclaim that is not compulsory. Quote, a pleading may state as a counterclaim against an opposing party any claim that is not compulsory. End quote. As the name suggests, a party may assert the permissive counterclaim in the action or may instead sue on it in a separate action, at a time and place of the party's choosing. Since by definition, the permissive counterclaim does not involve the same subject matter as the claim, little efficiency is lost. A party choosing not to bring a permissive counterclaim must at the same time be careful that it is not lost through the operation of issue preclusion. To the extent that the counterclaim has an issue or issues in common with the claim. The decision on that issue in the litigation of the claim may well be preclusive in the latter separate action on the counterclaim. Now moving to supplemental jurisdiction for counterclaims. Prior to the enactment of supplemental jurisdiction, the law in the area was clear. Compulsory counterclaims arising out of the same transaction or occurrence qualified for ancillary jurisdiction. Permissive counterclaims not arising out of the same transaction or occurrence did not qualify for ancillary jurisdiction. The enactment of Section 1367 in 1990 was not intended to change and did not change these results. Compulsory counterclaims 
ride into federal court on supplemental jurisdiction. Permissive counterclaims do not. For compulsory counterclaims, the court must decide whether the counterclaim is part of the same case or controversy under Article 3. By definition, a compulsory counterclaim, because it must arise out of the same transaction or occurrence, is part of the same Article 3 case or controversy. For permissive counterclaims, the court must decide whether the counterclaim is part of the same case or controversy under Article 3. By definition, a permissive counterclaim, because it does not arise out of the same transaction or occurrence, is not part of the same Article 3 case or controversy. Now moving to cross-claims and joinder of cross-claims. Federal Rule 13G governs cross-claims in federal practice. Quote, A pleading may state as a cross-claim any claim by one party against a co-party if the claim arises out of the transaction or occurrence that is the subject matter either of the original action or of a counterclaim. End quote. The rule accordingly makes four things clear. First, a cross-claim is a claim against a co-party. Second, a cross-claim is always permissive. Third, the party must state a claim, an assertion that a co-party is entirely liable, should be pleaded as a denial, not as a cross-claim. Fourth, the cross-claim must arise out of the transaction or occurrence of the original claim or counterclaim. The concept of transaction or occurrence means, in its essence, the same set of operative facts. Allowing parties to add factually related claims to an existing action makes efficient sense for the court. Allowing the addition of unrelated claims to an existing action would serve no efficiency purpose. That is why a cross-claim must be part of the same transaction or occurrence. This reasoning is undercut somewhat, however, by the fact that once a party is able to plead a cross-claim, the party is then able to add other, completely unrelated claims to the same action. This is so because of the broad federal joinder of claims rule, which allows the joinder of all claims against a party. So moving to third-party claims, also known as impleader and joinder of third-party claims. Third-party practice is commonly called impleader, and the two terms are synonymous. The only difficulty with use of the term impleader is that it is another joinder device beginning with I and sometimes causes confusion. A person must remember that impleader is used by a party to bring a person, not a party, a third party, into action. Intervention is used by a person, not a party, to the action to force his way into the action. And interpleader is used by a person subject to multiple claims to the same property to force all claimants to assert those claims in a single action. Third-party practice finds its origins in a common law procedure called vouching in or vouching to warranty. 
This procedure allowed a defendant to vouch in another person who would be liable, originally because the third person had given a warranty on the property sought from the defendant. This allowed the vouched-in party to assume defense of the action. A judgment against the original defendant would then also be conclusive on the vouched-in party. The weakness of this procedure was that the original defendant was still required to bring a second, separate action against the vouched-in party to obtain a judgment. Third-party practice was adopted by several of the code states and subsequently by the federal rules. The advantage of third-party practice lies in this example. Plaintiff-consumer sues defendant-retailer for selling a defective product. The retailer can defend the action and, should it lose, later sue the manufacturer of the product in a separate action. When the retailer wins the second action, the manufacturer ultimately pays the damages. The retailer is removed from the middle. Drawbacks exist with this plan, however. First, inconsistent results might occur. The jury in the first action may decide the product was defective, and the jury in the second action may decide the product was not defective. Second, it could delay results. The retailer might have to pay the first judgment years before the second case proceeds to judgment. Even worse, during the time lag, the statute of limitations on the second action might expire. Third, the retailer will incur the expense of litigating two separate actions. Impleter removes these problems by impleting the manufacturer into the original action. The retailer removes the possibility of inconsistent results since the same jury will decide the entire action. Judgment will be entered on both the original claim and the third-party claim at the same time. So no delay results. Both claims will be determined in the same litigation, so little added expense will result. And moving to supplemental jurisdiction for third-party claims. Prior to the enactment of supplemental jurisdiction, third-party claims qualified for ancillary jurisdiction. A derivative claim must arise from the same transaction or occurrence. In the standard third-party practice situation, defendant impledes the third-party defendant. The statute provides that supplemental jurisdiction extends to all other claims that are so related to claims in the action within such original jurisdiction that they form part of the same case or controversy under Article 3. A third-party claim, because it must arise derivatively through the original claim, is part of the same case or controversy. When the third-party defendant brings in a fourth-party defendant, that also is not a claim by a plaintiff, so supplemental jurisdiction attaches. Similarly, when the third-party defendant asserts a claim directly against the original plaintiff, that also is not a claim by a plaintiff. So supplemental jurisdiction applies. Now moving to joinder of parties and permissive joinder of parties. The common law 
in its search for a single issue made joinder of parties difficult. It tied joinder to the substantive rights of the parties and the forms of the action. It distinguished between joint interests in which joinder was possible and several interests in which joinder was not possible. While joinder of parties under Federal Rule 20 is not freely allowed as a joinder of claims under Federal Rule 18, the two requirements of Federal Rule 20A for permissive joinder of parties are minimal. One, the relief sought arises from the same transaction, occurrence, or series of transactions or occurrences. And two, a common question of law or fact will arise. The transaction or occurrence test arises throughout the federal joinder devices. We have already discussed its meaning with regard to compulsory counterclaims. The essence of a transaction or occurrence is a single set of facts. It is not in any way tied to legal theories of recovery or defenses. Federal Rule 20 goes even further than a single transaction or occurrence. It allows permissive joinder when the relief arises from a series of transactions or occurrences. Perhaps, for example, plaintiff is injured in an auto accident, and several months later, the physician treating her for the accident injuries commits malpractice. The plaintiff can join the driver and the physician permissively as defendants, since this is a series of transactions or occurrences even though separate in time by several months. Or perhaps a salesman of worthless securities sells them to Plaintiff A over the telephone and sometime later sells them to Plaintiff B during an in-home presentation. The court would likely determine this to be a series of transactions or occurrences so that the two buyers could join permissively as plaintiffs in a single action. Here is where the logical relationship test, considering judicial economy and convenience, makes sense. The common question requirement is even easier to satisfy. The question may be law or fact. In the first example, the extent and valuation of the plaintiff's combined injuries would provide a common question of fact. In the second example, the fraudulent nature of the defendant's security sales would provide a common question of law. The rule does not require a majority of common questions or even a multitude of common questions. It requires only a common question. Once again, consideration of whether a common question is presented will prompt the court to consider economy and convenience of trying the case in a single proceeding. Should the court determine that the parties are misjoined, the remedy is to drop the misjoined party, not to dismiss the case. Now moving to compulsory joinder of parties. The common law required joinder of parties in certain limited situations, chiefly when a joint interest was involved. In interpreting this requirement in Shields v. Barrow, the Supreme Court distinguished between merely necessary parties without whom the action could proceed and indispensable parties without whom the action could not proceed. 
a party was deemed indispensable when the action would affect the absent party's interest or the action could not provide complete relief without the absent party. When Federal Rule 19 was originally promulgated in 1938, it adopted this system. The title of the rule was Necessary Joinder of Parties, and it referred to persons having a joint interest who shall be made parties. The title of Federal Rule 19 is now Required Joinder of Parties. It attempts to avoid the labels of necessary and indispensable parties and directs the court faced with a question of whether a third party must be joined in an action to make a pragmatic decision based on the individual case. Now moving to interpleader. We reach the last of the joinder devices and the last of the joinder eyes. Interpleader is unique and is structurally different from all of the other joinder devices. Although interpleader provides a joinder device to bring all potential claimants into a single action, it does not supply personal jurisdiction over all the claimants. Because of this weakness, the first Federal Interpleader Act was passed in 1917. Today, it provides a method of nationwide service on claimants. This is known as statutory impleader. A second type of federal impleader is also available under Federal Rule 22. This is known as interpleader under the rule. Both types of federal interpleader have differing subject matter jurisdiction, personal jurisdiction, service, and other requirements. So the stakeholder may choose one or the other, depending on how the situation fits each. Now discussing statutory impleader. Statutory impleader is spread throughout three sections of Title 28. Sections 1335, 1397, and 2361. Taken together, these sections eliminate many of the jurisdictional problems that otherwise would exist in federal court. Only minimal diversity is required between two or more claimants to the property. The citizenship of a plaintiff bringing the interpleader is thus irrelevant unless the plaintiff is also a claimant. A minimum jurisdictional amount of $500 is required. Then you may be laid in a district where any claimant resides. Process may be served nationwide. And the district court may enjoin claimants from pursuing the property in any other state or federal court. And finally, interpleader under the rule. Interpleader under Federal Rule 22 in many ways is less desirable than statutory interpleader. Yet because of the differing jurisdictional requirements, it may be the only one of the two types of federal interpleader available to the stakeholder. Interpleader under the rule has no special diversity jurisdiction provision, which means that standard diversity requirements apply. The plaintiff stakeholder must be of citizenship diverse from all defendants or claimants. The stake must be of a value exceeding $75,000. Venue must be laid under standard venue rules. A defendant may seek interpleader by way of counterclaim and statutory interpleader is silent on this possibility. 
and the rule is silent on whether the court may enjoin claimants from proceeding against the stake in other actions. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.